Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. Our guest today is Judy Ringel. I am so honored that Judy, who has been a member of Temple for over 55 years with her husband, Nick, um, is joining us as our very first guest on this podcast. Judy grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, um, but has lived here in Memphis for over 55 years. Uh, built a wonderful family here with her husband, Nick, um, her children, Betsy, Jimmy, and Jonathan, and has a really fascinating career that I am so excited for her to share with all of you listeners. Um, of course, she's here today mainly to talk about the book she wrote, Children of Israel, The Story of Temple Israel, just a fantastic history of this congregation. Um, but before she wrote that book, she had a really fascinating career. She um, volunteered quite a bit at the Federation here in Memphis. She was president of the Young Women's Division. She also was board chair and on the board for many years before that of Memphis Planned Parenthood. And um, later in life became a writer. She worked uh, for many years at Memphis Magazine, uh, rising to senior editor and associate publisher. So Judy Ringel, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Tour to the People. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. Well, why don't you um, just begin by telling us a little bit about what brought you to Memphis and um, what it was like in those early years um, in Memphis and, and at Temple Israel? Well, we, as a young couple with um, a two-year-old, not quite two-year-old daughter, uh, my husband, Nick, was working for a company that was headquartered in Sandusky, Ohio. They responded to an ad actually from, um, I guess, economic development of, from Nashville, the state of Tennessee, and um, decided, the owner of the company decided to build a plant in Millington, Tennessee, and asked Nick if he would come back down here and, and manage it. And um, this, for those who don't know, this was in 1964, which was the height of the civil rights movement. It was the summer that, unfortunately, the three civil rights activists were brutally murdered in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is not very far from here. And it certainly gave me pause, aside from the natural worries or concerns about moving away from family, um, it gave me pause, both of us, about did we want to come down here and raise children in the South, especially in Memphis, Tennessee. 
so we went back and forth. Eventually, we came down to look at the city. And <laughs> we came in April. Um, if any of you know what, what the weather is like in Cleveland, Ohio in April, it's still snowing. And we came down to Memphis, and the azaleas and the dogwoods were in bloom, and it was about 80 degrees, mm -hmm. and it was absolutely heavenly. Um, and we decided we would give it a shot. Um, we actually wrote out a contract that said if either one of us was unhappy after two years, then we would either go back to Cleveland or go someplace else. And um, ironically, I never saw that piece of paper again until we moved <laughs> 10 years later. And I was cleaning out the desk drawers, and I found that so-called contract. So by then, we were ensconced in the community and very, very happy here. Wonderful. So that's a long way around. Um, as far as Temple is concerned, um, uh, we were both, well, especially Nick's, Nick's family was, was active in Fairmont, what was then Euclid Avenue Temple in Cleveland, it's now Fairmont Temple. And um, Nick's father was president of that congregation. So we were accustomed to being in the reform congregation and, and get active. And Nick saw that, especially in the beginning, as his route to connect with the Jewish community and, and an outlet that for activities and friendships aside from Milling, what, was he, what he had in Millington. So we were, um, you know, we were kind of active from the beginning. Not so much me, because I eventually was home with three children. Um, but Nick definitely uh, was involved. And, and it became our, our, our spiritual home, our, our Memphis family, and it has been ever since. Hmm. What are some of your favorite memories here, most special memories in um, Temple Israel, whether this building or um, our prior on Montgomery? Hmm, interesting question. Um, well, um, all right, one was um, we arrived here the same summer as Harry Danziger, uh, Rabbi Emeritus Harry Danziger. And I vividly remember the sermon that he gave on uh, Yom Kippur morning uh, during the, the day of the Six-Day War. And um, it was so powerful and so moving um, that uh, I, I still remember it. I rem as a matter of fact, I remember quite a few of his really mm. top-notch ser uh, sermons. Um, one of several of which I quoted in my book. Um, so I, we felt connected in that way. And um, favorite memories of Temple. Gosh, that's hard. There are so many. Oh, I'll tell you one. Um, fast forward. Uh, the weekend that the uh, opening of Temple Israel was going, the, the new building was going to take place. Um, the, they had been working all day long in the chapel. Um, the artist and his, his crew had been working to uh, place that tapestry that's behind the ark, that absolutely mm. gorgeous tapestry. And they had men on ladders and men on scaffolding, and, and it was an all-day project. And I had been here earlier in the day for something, and I peeked into the chapel, and it was clearly a work in progress, and I left to go home. 
Meantime, later that day, Nick was at, in, at Temple for a board meeting. And when the board meeting was over, everybody kind of walked by the chapel to see if they had yet hung that, you know, re lowered that tapestry, and they hadn't. And, but they were getting very close. So he came home and he got me and he said, come on, you've got to come back to Temple with me. You've got to see this. So uh, we're lucky to live just minutes away from Temple. So um, anyway, so we went back to Temple and got stood there along with Herschel and Shirley Feibelman. And I forget who else was in the room, but you know, a handful of us. Uh, and watched as they lowered that tapestry, which of course was the first time any of us had ever seen it. And it was such a dramatic moment. Uh, it was just just such a privilege to be there for that. So. Wow, what a, what a story. And for those of us like me who grew up here mm -hmm. um, and who my entire life, my memories of going into that space and seeing, seeing it, mm -hmm. imagining I just take it for granted that it's always been there, but <laughs> I can't imagine what it must have felt like to, and I'm sure that I can imagine you were a part of the move in various mm -hmm. ways, seeing it culminate like that um, in all of its grandeur must mm -hmm. have been really special. It really was, it, it really was. It was, they had had it all rolled up, it's like a window shade. And it was all rolled up uh, along the ceiling. And exactly what the problems were that kept them working at it all day long, I don't know, except that the artist was very particular about things. And, but it was perfect when they rolled it down. And um, it's just so colorful and so vibrant. And um, it was quite amazing. Wow. Wow. So stories like that and memories like that, um, in addition to just raising your family and giving so much to your family, I, I would think that might have been part of what motivated you, what led you to um, take on this really tremendous task of writing the history of this place. Um, but, but what else? What, what led you to want to write this book, Children of Israel? Well, I'd never written a book before. so <laughs> Now, it, um, it just... It caught me at, at a good time. I had, um, I think I had left Memphis Magazine at that point, and I was kind of restless, looking around for a project. And this one just intrigued me, partly in a way I think that maybe if I had grown up in Memphis, I wouldn't have felt that way. Uh, but because I didn't, I didn't have any memories of my own. Um, and I really was curious about the beginning of the congregation. And when I realized that it started in, well, there's a question of, the, the congregation probably informally uh, started in 1853, but we chose to take, use 1854 as the exact beginning date since that was the date on the charter that they got from the mm. state of Tennessee, March 2nd, 1854. So um, I just, I, I'm, I'm curious by nature. And um, so I was really curious about what it was like to be in Memphis, to be in, in any, any southern city, and to be um, inaugurating a congregation, a, a, you know, a synagogue. Um, so I, uh, when Micah, <laughs> beware of Micah inviting, inviting you to lunch. Uh, <laughs> 
Micah and Sherry Samuels, who was then president of the congregation, and I had lunch one day and talked about this project. And I, and we, I had like a three-year start. Um, and uh, I kind of tentatively said, yeah, yeah, I think that sounds interesting. And then the waitress came by and asked if anybody wanted to order dessert. And Micah said, pointing to Sherry, he, he said, well, I think this lady and I will have some, but this one over here doesn't have time. She's, <laughs> she has to go home and write a book. So. <laughs> and, and that was because we, the, the idea was to get it done for the 150th anniversary, exactly, is that right? Exactly, um, So uh, to be honest, when I got home and I thought, what have I just agreed to? Because I, was, I had served on enough um, nonprofit boards to realize that although, you know, um, situations or problems of, of great import actually get thrashed out at board meetings, more often, the, you know, it's like, uh, do we have enough money to repair the roof? Um, and I saw myself trying to read through 150 years worth of congregational oh minutes, if we could find the early minutes. Um, and I, I really was afraid that it was all going to turn out to be humdrum, ordinary, um, and that I wouldn't glean enough information out of the minutes to make it to come alive. And I couldn't have been more wrong. <laughs> Truly. Truly. First of all, um, by the, the, the archives were stored at the time, in a, they were stuffed into a closet, um, kind of a walk-in closet that's in that corridor along the way to the robing room. And um, it, was, it, it was just absolutely packed and terribly disorganized. I mean, there really was just no organization. There was just stuff that were thrown in there that Shirley Feibelman had the wisdom and the foresight to understand that these things were important. But somehow they never got really organized. And so uh, by the time I came along, Lindy Feibelman, Shirley's daughter-in-law, um, was chairing the archives committee. And she and I put on our the kind of clothes that you wear to clean out the garage. And went over to the temple one day and started literally on our hands and knees prowling through to find, see what was there. And I've always joked that the uh, archaeologist who discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls couldn't have been any more excited than we were when we found the, hand, the uh, first book of minutes from Temple Israel, handwritten, um, and um, they were on dated from, not, well, I should say there, that there probably were minutes from 1854 to 1857, but those are lost to history. We never found those. Mm -hmm. But starting in 1857, uh, three years after the congregation was chartered, we have a complete record from that moment on. My goodness. And those first couple of books of minutes were just incredible to read through, absolutely incredible. So we were very excited, and I, as I started reading, I realized this was really going to be fun. Yeah, I, not only must that just be a, a, a direct view into a time capsule of a time and place that, it, a place that's the same. Mm -mm. We walk the same streets. When, you, when you're downtown and you, you go in the pinch and you, 
um, we're in the same place, but it's a whole whole different world. Okay. Um, it's when the city was just beginning um, in a lot of ways. And so not only must that have been just an incredible aha moment, mm-hmm. but um, I think what you said a moment ago about reading through these minutes and saying, oh gosh, I mean, if, if I um, was just in a, a, I don't know, a bookstore and I heard about, oh, a history of a synagogue, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that's the first thing I would reach for. Exactly. You know, no offense. It, exactly, but it sounds very ho-hum. But the stories that you brought out, that you were able to find and tell in such an interesting way, it, it's not just the story of a synagogue. It is. It's the story of a remarkable place and remarkable people who've been a part of it, but it's a lens into the history of this city and, and the world, and you told it in such a, a really powerful way. So, well, I, yeah, go ahead. I, say, I realized early on that uh, Temple Israel, or any other place, doesn't, exi- doesn't exist in a vacuum. It existed as part of a city, a growing city, um, a very rough-and-tumble city when it began. And it has always, so that the, the, the history of Memphis itself is very dramatic uh, between the, you know, the, the congregation was founded seven years before the Civil War. And as soon as the Civil War was over, then they had to deal with, with three terrible, devastating rounds of yellow fever, which especially in today's time with the pandemic um, seems even closer than it, you know, it was. But, uh, but then after that, and then they, they revived, and then there was, was World War I and World War II, and the, the uh, establishment of the State of Israel, which didn't take place in Memphis, but certainly had repercussions all up for Jews all over the world. Um, and um, the Six-Day War, um, I mean, there were so many. And then, of course, the Civil Rights Movement, mm-hmm. of which Memphis was a big part. Uh, so there's all that drama that was the backdrop for the growth of t- whatever was happening with Temple Israel. And so to me, I realized early on that what I wanted to do was to place Memphis in the city where all these things were, like in the room where it happened, uh, but in the city where it happened. And learned a lot about the, um, the effect of the, um, the influence of the city on the, the congregation and the influence of the congregation on the city. Hmm. So I want to get into some of these stories, um, but before I, before we do, I just want to pick up on this point that, that you just mentioned about um, what, what was going on in the world had echoes here and vice versa. And um, a few years ago, I had um, the opportunity to work as a chaplain intern Hmm. at um, Methodist University Hospital. And, and um, as a, a group, our chaplains went to um, a lynching site hmm. um, that as part of our education um, about the city and about the, the trauma that our communities have been through, um, we went there. And even though I grew up in Memphis, mm-hmm. lived here pretty much my whole life, before this moment, I had never really known, I'd, I'd heard of lynchings. I knew what lynchings were in theory, but I, I didn't know that a place right off of Summer Avenue that I'd driven past hundreds of times was the site of this horrific 
mm. lynching in 1917. And just a year or two earlier, I had lived in Israel and um, had learned all about the history of Israel and the establishment of the state. In 1917, for the Jews, was a very auspicious year because it was the Balfour Declaration mm -hmm. when the British government essentially said, we are committing to making a Jewish state in the land of, of Israel. And so just thinking about um, where Memphis and where Temple was in that moment that was so important to global Jewry, um, it, it calls to mind, I think, a little bit about how we, exactly what you're saying, that we have a um, interplay with the history of the city and the world as a synagogue, because as, as I hope you'll talk about, Rabbi Feintreiber um, played a, a really important role in those events of, of the lynchings and, and in the broader community. If you're reading things that happened, so much of, of what was going on was revealed, not so much by, by um, stories, but by the words that were, were written. So, for example, and I'm struggling here to find it. Oh, here. Um, so, I referred a few minutes ago to the, the I think I did, to the um, charter, that the official charter from the state of Tennessee for, the con for what was called then the Congregation of the Children of Israel, or B'nai Israel. So, here's the convoluted wording. It says, uh, the charter was granted, the document says, and I'm quoting now, for the purpose of establishing in the city of Memphis a church for the worship of Almighty God according to the rites and creed of the Hebrew sect. Close quote. Um, and obviously, I didn't need to be able to read between the lines too deeply to understand how foreign the uh, 36 families of Jews, uh, they were German Jews, immigrants, new immigrants, uh, how foreign they and their religion seemed to the rest of, of Memphis, which was then and still is largely Christian, largely um, American, not, you know, Native American, um, and um, very Southern. And here was this group of, little group, of German Jews who plunked themselves down in the middle of this and started to form a synagogue. Um, and because of that, I found that they, they didn't necessarily welcome everybody who wanted to join. I would think, you know, with so few people, if, if some Jewish peddler came along or someone, they would immediately rope him in and, and welcome him into the congregation. But they were so concerned then about, and maybe to an extent now, um, about their, um, uh, how they were viewed by the general com uh, community, that they made it hard. They had, for example, it was like a fraternity. They, uh, you, they could blackball, <laughs> it was in the bylaws, that they could blackball anyone who applied for membership that they thought would not um, fit in, not so much not fit in, but who would would not bring credit to the congregation. Um, so it's kind of funny when you read about that, but, but on, by the same token, I think I found from the beginning that this is a city that um, 
respects faith, and, and that becomes a respect for faith of all kinds, religious faith. And so uh, Temple Israel and its members were respected in the community from the very beginning. When they, um, there's a whole thing from the minutes of a board meeting in 1857 when they were getting ready to um, build, well, not so much build their first, there was a congregation, a temple. Um, there was a building that had, was a former bank, bank building on the corner of Main and Exchange, a little wooden building, and the bank that had been there went out of business and somehow, I guess, the temple bought the building um, with help from Judah Turo by, uh, for, uh, by interest, uh, you know, as an aside. Um, and um, they had a meeting about how they were going to divide up the jobs of, of doing so, and they had meetings about um, whether they should have men's pews and women's pews or whether they should be together. In the beginning, the congregation was orthodox, and they did have separate seating for men and women. Uh, but they also had these committees. One of them was in charge of, I think they, the way they put it was, soliciting funds from all the, quote, Israelites in the city. That was the way the minutes read. And a second committee that uh, was in charge of soliciting funds from all the non-Jews in Memphis. Why would a non-Jew want to? Uh, well, yeah. but they did, apparently. Interesting. And I thought it was, it was a statement, it was a testament to how comfortable they felt by 1857 um, that the men felt that they could approach their business associates or their next-door neighbors or whoever and ask them to contribute to the funds of, for Temple Israel. I never read, uh, it's, it's, I don't know whether anybody ever did, but the fact that they were willing to do that, I thought says a lot about their position in the community. And even though they were conscious of being very different and very vulnerable, they also apparently felt that they were respected. Hmm. So. That interested me a lot. It, it is interesting, and I think that that trend, as someone who grew up here, um, continues to this day, that we, even though we're different, um, maybe there's something about being in the Bible Belt that maybe. makes just the fact that we have um, a religious space that we go to, and just like my friends would go to church on Sunday or Wednesday, um, when I went to to Shabbat or when I went to Sunday school or Hebrew school on Wednesday nights, it, we all kind of did it. Uh -huh. And f interestingly enough, when I went to, of all places, India, mm. um, I, I found that they had a very similar experience because when most of their friends, um, the Jews of India that I, that I met that were my age, they, their friends were either, um, for the most part, Hindu or Muslim. And yet they had each other um, over for Hanukkah or, mm. or they went to their friends for Diwali or all of these different things um, were accepted because it was just part of the cultural ethos or the cultural milieu to be part of a religious community. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Yeah, very much so. Um, you were asking about Rabbi Feinschreiber. Rabbi Feinschreiber, William Feinschreiber, was the rabbi of Temple Israel Oh, I'd have to look up the dates, but in the 1920s. And um, 
he was uh, very much an activist, a, a uh, civil rights activist. They're, they were not labeled as such in those days. And he was apparently fearless. Um, the uh, Ku Klux Klan was on the rise in 1920 and apparently uh, were making inroads in Memphis. Uh, Rabbi Feinschreiber sadly did not write about or did not preach about the lynching that, that Jeff spoke of, Rabbi uh, spoke of earlier, but he did write about it afterward. Mm. And he, uh, in very scathing terms and, and very self-deprecating um, terms because he was, he was frustrated with himself, among others, for not having tried to step in ahead of time. They had heard something about it, but he didn't realize how terrible it was going to be or what it was re really going to be until after confronted with it. And he went home and he wrote this scathing letter and took it to his friend who was the editor of the Commercial Appeal at the time. I think it was, I think it was the CA. Which for those of you outside of Memphis is, is now today our primary, one of the two primary newspapers um, and has been for many years. Yeah, and he took it to the editor who was his friend and said, please publish this on the editorial page tomorrow. The editor um, edited the piece a little bit and, and softened it, which is, is shocking when I realized how, he, how much he softened it. But the, the impact of, of the speech still came through. Um, and basically it was a speech about how, how inhumane, how just terrible, awful lynching was. Um, he went on to advertise in the Commercial Appeal one morning, one Friday morning, that he was going to speak about the, the Ku Klux Klan. And he did so that night. Um, in, uh, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have the words in front of me, but in very powerful words about might does not equal right, and um, basically that they needed, these people needed to get out of town and stay out of town. Um, and then afterwards, other clergymen uh, began to speak out about it. But Rabbi Feintreiber was the first. And he was the one who had the courage to stand up and um, say what he thought about the um, terrible things that were happening under the guise of the Ku Klux Klan. It's really bravery, uh, I think that was already used, brave is, is just doesn't begin to describe <laughs> in the South mm -hmm. in 1917. Mm -hmm. um, we, we are recording this just a few days after the horrible um, hostage situation in the synagogue in, in Texas, outside of Dallas, and thinking about in, almost inviting mm -hmm. um, certainly danger, very dangerous elements um, that they're certainly not predisposed to be friendly to Jews, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, in fact, the exact opposite. The KKK mm -hmm. publishing in the commercial appeal that you're going to um, preach a, essentially against them mm -hmm. the same night. Um, what a just tremendous moral force mm -hmm. this Rabbi Feintreiber must have been to, yeah. to have been able to do that. And he inspired, I think, every other rabbi uh, of Temple Israel who followed him. 
uh, have, they, I think he inspired that dedication, not only to Judaism and to the congregation, but to um, civil rights. Uh, there were terrible wrongs being committed in the, in the city and in, in the county and in the South and in the world. And um, he had the courage and the, the fortitude to call it what it was. So, so yeah. how did other rabbis um, subsequent to him follow in his footsteps? Well, Rabbi Feintreiber was unfortunately here for just, I think, 11 years, and he um, left and went to Philadelphia. Um, He's the only senior rabbi to have served here who's not buried in the cemetery. I think is that right? so. Yeah. I think so. I wrote that. I hope I, <laughs> <laughs> I hope I was correct about that. Um, uh, rabbi Feintreiber, well, I have to talk a little bit about the rabbi who preceded Rabbi Feintreiber. Um, we're, we're recording this at Temple Israel and his desk, Rabbi Max Samfield. Samfield, uh, thank you. We're looking in the book actually at the monument erected, uh, is that for his son? That was for him. Uh, for him yeah. um, at Temple yeah. Israel Cemetery. He, he was the rabbi of Temple Israel for 44 years. And so when you think about that, you realize that not just his generation, but one or possibly two generations younger than that. He was the rabbi, they, the only rabbi they ever knew. Uh, and he is best known um, <laughs> for giving long-winded sermons and for um, his really um, almost angelic work um, during, the civil, during the yellow fever epidemics. Uh, yellow, it, Looking back at the yellow fever epidemic now, after two years and in, in, into the third year of, of our pandemic, um, it, it puts everything in a different light. Uh, yellow fever was deadly, absolutely deadly. And um, it swept over um, Memphis, came up from, from New Orleans, apparently, and just came up the river. And in those days, the you know, they didn't really understand the, the connection between um, uh, improper uh, handling of sewage and mosquitoes and, and the whole works. And so Memphis was ripe for disaster, and in 1853 it struck. Uh, there were thousands of people very quickly became ill, and of those... Uh, I don't remember the exact statistic, but thousands of people fled, thousands of people died. Um, and Depending on, we don't have the best data, uh, but from the data I've seen, and, and I know a little bit about this because I taught a class a couple months ago on mm. the heroic work of, of Rabbi Samfield and um, other people who stayed in Memphis, but about a third of the people, essentially all the people who could afford to leave Memphis did. Mm -hmm. Um, many went to St. Louis, right. and many of those never came back, sadly. Right, and Mem Memphis was, before, um, before the yellow fever, it was really on the upswing, mm -hmm. and it devastated the city. But between a third and a half of people who caught this disease died from it, depending on the statistics yes. that, you, that, that you have. So really, when we think about today how terrible COVID is, mm -hmm with a case fatality rate of, you know, roughly one in a thousand to one in 10,000, um, thinking of a disease that killed 30% of the people who got it is just astounding.
Um, the statistics are incredible. Just the, the worst epidemic was in 1878, but the, we know more about the 1873 epidemic because um, the B'nai B'rith was sending in money and volunteers to help, just the same way that is done today when the Red Cross or whoever sends in volunteers to help in a disaster. And um, they commissioned a man named A.E. Franklin, who was a member of Temple Israel and who was at the time the warden of the cemetery. Um, and they commissioned him to write a report because the B'nai wanted to know how their money was being spent. Um, so he wrote a, re a very detailed report of the 1873 epidemic. So we know more about it. Um, and it was in the fall, we talk now about um, suspending gatherings and, and baseball games were, you know, it, right away the NBA canceled and schools were closed and, and whatever. Um, and it, that same thing happened in the fall of 1873, even religious um, services were canceled. There was, nobody was allowed to gather at all. And they still, it still just swept through the community. Um, so, but I have the statistics here. During seven weeks between September 14th and November 5th of 1873, Franklin, Franklin reported 51 burials in Children of Israel Cemetery, nearly twice as many as the cemetery normally handled in a full year. And this was just in seven weeks. And to give you an idea of the impact, um, okay, that was just, by the way, and there were 43 burials in the, what he called the Orthodox Congregation Cemetery, um, the one that was owned by Beth Elmeth at the time. And in those just seven weeks, the toll on the Jewish community was unbelievable. 31 women in the Jewish community lost their husbands, 11 men lost their wives. 158 children lost one parent, 23 children lost both parents, and 17 families buried a child. And that is, that's just in, a, in that little Jewish community. In seven weeks. In seven weeks. So it's, it's it, hard to fathom, and, and I would love to know what it was like for you when you first came upon um, the we still have the register, the funeral register, mm -hmm. that um, this gentleman, Franklin, um, wrote in. And you can see, we still have it in the temple archives, and you can see um, he, he'll write the name of one family member that passes away, a child, a parent, and very often, like you're saying, just a few, within a few days. Mm -hmm. Or a few hours. Or a few hours, someone else from the same family will also have succumbed. Right. And it's just, it's devastating to imagine. And I read in, in your book that um, this gentleman, uh, Franklin, I'm, I'm blanking on his first name. Uh, A -E, it was two letters, A-E. A-E Franklin and Rabbi Samfield had so many burials that they would bury people by torchlight in them mm -hmm. all through the night. Um, it's just hard to, hard to fathom. It is, and there were, I mean, there were members of Temple Israel, as, as Rabbi said, anybody who could afford to left, or at the very least, the, the men stayed to keep their shops open or to keep their businesses going, but they sent their wives and children out of the, the city. 
And many of those men who stayed were called upon or volunteered to help whatever they needed. And many, many of them volunteered to act at, at to come to funerals and um, to f help form a minion at a funeral. Um, and they, they did this day after day or night after night. Um, and some of them succumbed to yellow fever. Um, the saddest thing, as I was reading, all of the minutes of the congregation include a report from the warden whose job it is to oversee the cemetery. And the cemetery, uh, and so they would list the names of the people who had died or had been buried in the cemetery in the previous month. And that was a routine thing. So unfortunately, at one point, I was doing research, reading about this, reading the minutes of a particular meeting in 1873, or 1878, no, it must have been 73, when I encountered the name of Walter Jacob Franklin, who was A.E. Franklin's 11-year-old son. And he died. And I literally, I remember, you know, gasping, like, oh no, not, not him too. And uh, interestingly, I, it was so poignant. Everything that happened during that period was so poignant. And I was so uh, immersed in what I was doing that when I finished that chapter, um, I went out to, actually I got Nick to come with me and we drove out to the cemetery on a Sunday afternoon and I felt like I just needed to pay my respects to all those people. So very, very poignant, especially so now. So let's see, you were asking about the rabbis that followed Franklin. Um, well, I will tell you one, probably shouldn't, but it's not Temple, well, in a sense it is Temple Israel's finest hour. Uh, the rabbi who followed um, Rabbi Feintreiber was um, Dr. Edelson. And actually it was kind of interesting that kind of swapped rabbis with congregation Road of Sholem in um, Philadelphia because Rabbi Feintraber went there and Dr. Edelson came here. Mm. Um, anyway, Dr. Edelson, apparently, I never met the man, um, was uh, very erudite. Um, people used to say that his, his sermons were, uh, in some, some cases, kind of over people's heads. They were very academic. Uh, but he also was very uh, uh, focused on ecumenical work. He reached out to the uh, clergy, the other clergy in Memphis, all, all Gentile, of course. And um, together they formed something called the Crosscut, Crosscut Club, I think it was called, uh, which became the forerunner of the um, National Association of, uh, what it, what is it called? Christians and Jews. Um, I can't remember the exact term for it, but an organization that was um, like the national something conference of mm. whatever, of Christians and Jews. Um, so, um, but somehow, and, and he, was, he, he was here for a long time too, and he was here during the Depression. And the Depression years, of course, were very tough on everybody, including uh, Memphis and including um, Temple Israel. Uh, there were several rounds of, of layoffs and um, several rounds of uh, pay cuts. 
Rabbi, fine, Rabbi uh, Edelson voluntarily took a pay cut of $1,000 one year and then two years later came back to the board and asked them to cut his salary by 10%. So uh, everybody was tightening their belts. Mm. And um, so ironically, in 1937, just as um, the country and um, the congregation were beginning to pull themselves out of the depression doldrums and you know, be able to see, see daylight again, um, somehow, Dr. Edelson uh, ran afoul of a, a section of the congregation. I don't know the details, but um, there was a movement to um, have him resign, ask, get him to resign. So this apparently came to a head under, um, uh, under the presidency of Dr. Lewis Levy, who was a um, well-known a uh, very prominent ear, nose, and throat doctor, I think. And um, there was enough of a movement that it finally came to pass that, that they had a special meeting of the board one night for the purpose of deciding whether or not to ask for Rabbi Edelson's uh, resignation. So it, the board started out in um, executive session that night and they wrestled, wrestled with the topic and they took a vote and it passed that they were going to ask Rabbi Dr. Edelson to resign. Dr. Edelson during this period was, I guess, in his office kind of pacing the floor and finally he was asked to come in and say a few words and he came in and he had read the handwriting on the wall and he resigned. He offered his resignation and he walked out. So at that point, um, I, and all of this is in the minutes, by the way. I, can re I was able to reconstruct that meeting to the point where I could almost see it. Wow. And um, so, as I wrote, um, Dr. Edelson walked out, and uh, presumably the board members were either those pro or con, were resigned to the fact that he was going to resign, he was going to leave. and. Um, they figured, okay, good, we can all put on our coats and go home. And it's late, you know, I want to go home. And Dr. Levy said, well, not so fast, everybody. Sit back down, we're not finished. Dr. Edelson has submitted his resignation, but now we have to decide whether or not we want to accept his resignation. So everybody went back to their seats and they sat down again and, um, Lots of people spoke. Several people spoke in favor of accepting the rabbi's resignation, but many more spoke in favor of rejecting his resignation. And they took another vote, and it was decided that they would that the board would not accept Dr. Edelson's resignation. So at that point, they said they were going to have a vote at the annual meeting, which was coming up a few months later, and that the congregation at that point would have the opportunity to vote whether or not to retain Dr. Edelson. And when it came time for the, the annual meeting, and Dr. Edelson was, I mean, it reminded me kind of of an election for president of the class in fifth grade. Dr. Edelson was standing out in the hall waiting to see what was going to happen. 
Um, but what happened was that the congregation voted you almost unanimously, overwhelmingly, to retain Dr. Edelson. And um, when that was over, uh, as one person told me, in many congregations, that would have been enough to split the congregation. And, and in many cities, that's what would have happened. But it didn't happen at Temple Israel. And every, the, my, the members came together, and they um, buried the hatchet, so to speak. Dr. Edelson stayed on at Temple Israel for 17 more years and was a very well-respected member of the community, Jewish and Gentile. And um, the congregation as a whole weathered the storm. So, as I said, it's, it's, it's both showing the congregation at its worst and in the end showing it at its best. Wow. Yeah, quite well, a story. It really is, and I do think that, I'm curious to your thoughts as to why or how we were able to remain together, but there's no other that I know of congregations of our size in cities this small. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because in cities our size, that there's every city has the, the shul I go to and the shul I'd never step right. foot in, right? <laughs> right. And here, somehow, we've managed to stay united mm -hmm. over all these decades. So this was, as far as I know, the um, the closest that the congregation ever got to splitting. Um, and they didn't, and, and I think it's, it's wonderful. Um, so there were, and I, I don't know, I've heard a variety of stories as to what exactly led to that moment, but um, I don't really know. Hmm. Um, so. Well, I'd love to talk for a moment about the next rabbi, mm -hmm. um, Rabbi Wax, and speaking of people who followed in Rabbi Feintreiber's example of civil rights, he, he really dedicated his, his life to that. Mm -hmm. Yes, he did, and he, uh, but in a quiet way. Um, people don't realize, when you look back on it now, and, and if anyone hears the stories about Rabbi Wax, um, uh, you don't realize that he really preferred working behind the scenes. He did not want to be <laughs> what his wife Helen once referred, told me, he didn't want to be a general without an army. And he wasn't sure, um, at least in, at times, um, how much support he would get from the congregation. Uh, men who were in business and didn't want to be run out of town by the Ku Klux Klan or whatever, Citizens Council. Um, uh, but in any case, he, he worked behind the scenes. He was a member of, after, after the high school in Little Rock was integrated in 1957, I think, um, Rabbi Wax worked, served on a committee, a biracial committee, the name of it I don't remember, but um, that was attempt, his job was to try to make sure that integration took place peacefully in Memphis, that there would be no riots and there would be no marching in the streets and so on, that it would take place quietly. So he worked quietly behind the scenes and um, in many cases very effectively. Uh, and then the irony of April, what was it, April 4th, 1968, 
when Martin Luther King was killed in Memphis. And Rabbi Wax had a special uh, relationship, sort of, with Henry Loeb, who was at the time the mayor of Memphis and was completely intransigent when it came to trying to anybody trying to settle the uh, sanitation workers strike, which was what triggered um, the, the uh, which was the reason that that Martin Luther King came to Memphis in the first place. He came here in support of the sanitation workers, um, and. Uh, it just so happened that the Loeb family had were had belonged to Temple Israel. They were among the founders of the congregation. Mayor Loeb's. Mayor Loeb's ancestors. Yeah. 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 Um, and Mayor Loeb was confirmed by Rabbi Wax. Uh, and however, um, after he was married, he uh, resigned from Temple Israel and he joined an Episcop Episcopal church. Uh, how, but he liked Rabbi Wax, I guess, and he invited Rabbi to be to give the uh, invocation at his inaugural ceremony, which I believe Rabbi Wax did. Um, but Rabbi Wax had tried hard to convene a meeting. He did convene a meeting a couple of weeks before uh, King was killed. Um, he convened a meeting between the he he kind of brokered it. He um, between the uh, head of the union, the Sanitation Workers Union, and Mayor Loeb, and um, uh, oh, I guess whoever else, and and um, the meeting went on all night long. Uh, reportedly, was finally over. They finally threw in the towel about five o'clock in the morning, wow. and during that entire time, Henry Loeb refused to speak to the head of the union. And it was all through Rabbi Wax. He and it just, uh, you know, his his wife told me he was so worn out after that meeting and so discouraged, um, and just couldn't get anywhere. So when when King was killed, and of course everybody was so horrified, and um, it was a very very dark, awful awful day in Memphis. Um, and the next morning, the irony. Rabbi Wax was, at the time, the president of the Memphis Ministers Association. Uh, I believe he was the only rabbi who was a part of the Memphis Ministers Association. And maybe Rabbi Becker from uh, Beth Shalom, which was um, in existence at that time. But uh, so in that role, the day after King was killed, Rabbi Wax organized a march downtown. And the ministers marched. They gathered at St. Mary's uh, Catholic Church, I believe, and then they marched to City Hall. Um, but they marched two by two, one white minister and one black minister next to each other. And they marched all the way to, the, to City Hall and demanded to see the mayor. And they did see the mayor, and that um, at that moment, I am searching as we speak, if you hear me turning pages, um, I'm searching for the excerpt that I had of, of what he said to the mayor at, at that point. Uh, and he got in there and he said to him, um, he shook, it's, anyone who remembers Rabbi Wax remembers him shaking his index finger if he was angry and you know pointing his index finger. 
And he shook his finger at him and he said, and I'm quoting, we come here with a great deal of sadness and frankly, a great deal of anger. What happened in this city is a result of oppression and injustice, the inhumanity of man to man. And we have come to you for leadership in ending the situation. There are laws far greater than the laws of Memphis and Tennessee, and these are the laws of God. We fervently ask you not to hide any longer behind legal technicalities and slogans, but to speak out at last in favor of human dignity. And of course, those are the words that Rabbi Wax is remembered for. It was very, very powerful. It's just um, hard, hard to imagine trial after trial. Rabbi Samfield through um, plagues. Mm -hmm. Rabbi um, Wax, the day, the, the day of, the day after an American prophet mm -hmm. really was killed. Um, it struck down in our city and, and for him to say those words it's just, um, it's a tremendous legacy. Mm -hmm. It is. And I think, well, you would probably be no better than I, but I would think that um, an inspiration for every rabbi who comes afterward and serves this congregation in this city. And certainly it informs a lot of what Rabbi Greenstein does with, with um, well, the National Civil Rights Museum, but also with the organization called MICA, as opposed to <laughs> the person called MICA. Um, and um, I mean, I just feel, have felt that. And writing about each of these people, I could feel the, the momentum building um, from each one, the example that each one sets for the next. So we have uh, two rabbis left um, <laughs> that we haven't talked about. Um, Rabbi Danziger and, of course, Rabbi Greenstein. Um, and in, in the time that we have left, I want to invite you to share, um, you know, it, it is interesting looking at history from such a, a recent lens because all of the, maybe you knew Rabbi Wax, um, but certainly Rabbi Danziger uh, was your contemporary, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. you, you moved here the same year uh, he, he, he became actually the same day. <laughs> we moved into town the same day. <laughs> wow. Um, and so I wonder what history, uh, taking this perspective of a historian, looks like to you being their contemporary. Um, but then I also want to ask you, you know, we've talked a lot about the rabbis, but we've had some really amazing congregants too. And are there any stories of theirs that you would like to share? Oh dear. Um, well, first of all, let me say that as far as the back to the rabbis a minute. Um, writing this book um, allowed me to look at the trends. It, it, it's kind of the difference between um, uh, journalism that you write for a daily newspaper and and you just got to churn it out. And as opposed to, that's why I like magazine journalism, because that allows you to look back and look at a whole story and not just as it's happening, uh, deadline journalism. Um, and I felt the same way writing this book. I certainly was able to look back at, at the different 
tenures of, ra of each rabbi and the decades and the movements that were going on in nationally and internationally. Um, and of course, with Rabbi Danziger, what I was able to see, I thought the, thought the contrast between Rabbi Wax and Rabbi Danziger was amazing. Uh, in fact, I found that in many chapters, what I opened with was the, an excerpt from their inaugural sermon at Temple Israel, where they kind of laid out their feelings about, and, and their goals, and their feelings about where we stood as a congregation, where, where Reformed Judaism stood. And so you have the contrast between Rabbi Wax, who, whose first sermon um, was a cry for action, social action, uh, and uh, which was, you know, um, it, it was so much a part of the national reform movement at the time. Rabbi Danziger comes in, and he was no less a, a civil action president, I mean, mayor than Rabbi Wax, but he saw the congregation, he saw in the congregation a need to move back from classical reform, which many people felt had sort of, as the expression goes, thrown the baby out with the, bad, the bath water. And he felt the need to move us back to the middle. Um, and he gave a very powerful sermon, his first sermon, as a senior rabbi. No, I guess it was as an as a, um, assistant rabbi. Um, his first sermon talked about, it was called, uh, it's called the Trunk in the Attic Sermon. Um, because what he said was that when our forefathers came here, um, their, one of their goals was to Americanize themselves and um, not to be, quote, greenhorns anymore, but to assimilate, to become Americans. And so they packed, in, in symbolically, they packed up their Jewish traditions and rituals in a trunk, and they put them in the attic. And he gave this sermon in which he said, it's time to take that attic out of the, out of, you know, I mean, that trunk out of the attic and unpack those rituals and restore them to Jewish life. Uh, not exactly all at once, but um, so, and that, so I can see that trend um, coming back. And so suddenly there were, not suddenly, because he didn't do anything suddenly, gradually, um, there were more bar, mit, bar, bar and bat mitzvahs at Temple. There was a cantor at Temple. That actually happened under Rabbi Wax. But, uh, which people don't realize. Um, yeah, one of the pieces of advice that Rabbi Danziger gave to me when I um, came here, he very graciously took me to lunch and, and I asked him for advice and he said, you know, the one thing uh, that I did was I never made a major change. And clearly over his tenure, the way that we worshiped and the congregations I didn't do was totally transformed. Right. But the, the reason he was able to transform it, or one of the, the many reasons, was that he, he never did it all at once. Right. Just one little thing at a time. He told a funny story about using the new prayer book. And instead of simply gathering up all the old Union prayer books and putting them in a box in the attic or the basement, um, and springing the new prayer book on the congregation, 
Um, I, I don't remember the exact progression of how this happened, but uh, like one Friday night a week, I mean one Friday night a month, there would be um, both, you know, they would have both prayer books uh, in the, in the uh, you know, the book holder in the back, on the back of the chairs. And um, he would gradually, you know, read out of one and then read out of the other and then slowly but surely, uh, and it took a period of maybe a month, maybe two months or three months, where finally the only prayer book that was being used was the new prayer book. But that only happened after the congregation had become familiar mm -hmm. with it. Uh, he did something very similar when they, the, they decided uh, the pronunciation of Hebrew in prayers at temple uh, for a long time was the Ashkenazi pronunciation. And um, but meanwhile, Israel had adopted the Sephardic pronunciation as the official Hebrew language of uh, Israel. And since that was the spoken living language, uh, most congregations altered their, the way they were pronouncing words. But he said, um, I think the rab rabbi, Alan Greenbaum, was the uh, assistant rabbi at the time. And Rabbi Danziger said that one Friday night, he was standing there on one side, and Rabbi Greenbaum was on the other side, and Rabbi Green, or Harry said, um, uh, good Shabbos, and Rabbi, or, or the other way around, and Rabbi Greenbaum said, Shabbat Shalom. And they went on like that through the whole service. Um, and I can imagine it must have been sort of like watching a tennis match. But <laughs> anyway, but they did that, and then they did that again a little bit more, and it was a little bit more Sephardic and a little bit less Ashkenazi, and eventually mm. they had transformed it to all Sephardic. But that was his genius, actually. People, he was moving the congregation without their really noticing. Mm. So Totally brilliant. I love that, that so such a funny image, really, of, of um, the one, one rabbi using the Ashkenazic Shabbos mm -hmm. and then um, Shabbat mm. with the Sephardic and just, um, yeah, I mean, my, my grandparents who grew up, um, I would always say something that I probably learned at camp mm -hmm. uh, many years later that where we use a Sephardic pronunciation that they use in Israel and, and um, Adonai, Right. Right versus Adonai. Adonai was now Adonai, yeah. Exactly. And um, so, wow, what a, what a brilliant way of, of introducing that principle to the congregation. Mm -hmm. And he, so he really, I mean, he made major changes, um, but with people hardly noticing it was happening. Uh, I think if you're a Rip Van Winkle and you came back, you know, 20 years later, you'd see a huge difference. But... Uh, at the time, it was it was one little step at a time, and certain things he absolutely put his foot down about. But um, he he was very strategic in his thinking, um, and brought Temple back from the edge of <laughs> um, I don't know what um, classical reform. Yeah, I mean, very little or or no, maybe even antagonism. Um, towards ritual and Hebrew, right? And then bring, saying there's a richness in this tradition that, right. of course, morality and ethics are important, but that's not all. That can't be it. 
Yeah, and as he said, after all this time, we can afford to look Jewish. And part of what helped that was the 1967 war in Israel, which was, of course, a watershed. And, you know, suddenly, and I remember it so vividly, suddenly people who neighbors, they didn't even know that they were Jewish necessarily and who had never ever had a conversation about Judaism with neighbors or business associates and they found themselves being congratulated by their neighbors and their business associates for Israel's stunning victory and um, it suddenly, you know, people were proud to be Jewish instead of, you know, hushing each other in an elevator if somebody says something Jewish um, and they Everybody stood up a little taller and was proud to be Jewish. So it was partly against that backdrop that Rabbi Danziger was able to pull back, um, or I should say rediscover, um, some of those rites and traditions that, um, that make it, not they don't make us Jewish, but they are so much a part of Jewish relig religious life, ritual life, you know, cultural life. Um, so that was that was an interesting time too. All of these periods of history were were they were different from one another, and yet they they all follow the progression. And, and I love it really is an echo with what you began with, which is that this book um, is a story of how Temple is in conversation with the broader city and, and mm -hmm. the broader world. Yeah. Just, just as suddenly we could be, as American Jews all across the country, um, not in fear about our Jew Jewish identity and, and proud of our Jewish identity, um, we, we adapted and we changed. Yes, well, as you said, if, um, and I hadn't really thought about it this way, but, but the story is one of adaptation. And... Um, I, um, to the world, and, and not just. Another thing that, that is gonna come up in a couple of weeks actually was the, I was able to look at the rise of women mm. in, in synagogue life, both in lay leadership and as rabbis. Um, so that too was, was um, an interesting trend that I, I traced. So I, w I wanted to ask you about that. So Mildred Haas, yeah. uh, she was the Had, first, has, has, Mildred yeah. Haas. Um, she, in 1949, was the first woman elected to the Board of Trustees. Mm -hmm. And what was that like? Was that consonant with broader trends around the world or around um, the city? Or was that kind of radical? There wasn't much written about that at the time. I think it was not so much radical. Ed. It was sort of the opposite, that it was time and... Mm. and um, uh, Somewhere in here, I had a, 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 post, a picture of a postcard that had been sent out earlier. Uh, women got the vote in 19, I'm talking about nationally. Um, women's suffrage was passed in 1920, 1919. I'm not, I'd have to look it up. But from that point on, there was some uh, movement a uh, little pressure, I think, in Temple to finally give women some equal, if not equal, at least have a woman on the board. Um, and of course, in Orthodox tradition, women were not ever, they are now, but they were not part of synagogue leadership. They, 
<laughs> far from it. Um, so that's the, the tradition that uh, reform starts with, you know, is that um, men make the decisions, women provide the meals. Um, and so finally Mildred has, um, at, was actually elected to the board. Before that, they did finally have women as a, a, a sisterhood representative on the board. But Mildred was the first one to be elected as a full mem you know, a member of the board in her own right. And, and then Mildred Schwartz, well, right? Well, yes. Um, Mildred, was the, Mildred Schwartz was the first president. And um, if you ask me, <laughs> Um, who were who were people who stand out in synagogue leadership? Um, there were many incredible men. I, I, I hate, I, you know, I hesitate to name names because of who I might leave out. But um, the women, there were s several just completely outstanding women um, who were active in synagogue leadership. And Mildred Schwartz, certainly as the first female president and um, Jocelyn Rudner, who was not, um, you know, was never president, but who wielded quietly um, behind the scenes, wielded a lot of pressure. I mean, not pressure, but um, uh, influence. Um, as I said, very quietly, very ladylike, um, and very strong. Um, I mean, they, those were two who, who stand out. Um, so, uh, who didn't we talk about? Oh, <laughs> Rabbi Greenstein. Uh, who? <laughs> Rabbi Greenstein, as anyone who has ever met him knows, is a force of nature. <laughs> and um, we were very fortunate, Nick and I, to meet him on the first day that he was in Memphis um, being interviewed for the job. Uh, and I will only say we had, there was an opening for an assistant rabbi, and Rabbi Danziger had gone to Cincinnati and identified three or four likely good candidates for the job and persuaded them to come to Memphis for an interview, and we interviewed the first three. Uh, we, and we didn't interview them. We took, my role was as the wife of the president, we took them to dinner. Um, and along with, um, if I remember correctly, Harry and Jeannie Danziger and Natalie and Jimmy Jelinek because um, my husband was the president and Jimmy Jelinek was the, in, uh, you know, the whatever, the executive vice president or whatever. He was the next, going to be the next president. And um, so uh, the last candidate was Micah. And uh, by the time dinner was over, um, we all agreed that this was our man. We just hoped that we could, we could, you know, grab him before somebody else did. And there were several other uh, congregations I know were very interested. So, but it was exciting from the very. He was exciting from the very beginning. He was such a a force and a breath of not not so much fresh air because Harry was <laughs> never stale. But um, he had youth and exuberance and packed full of ideas that he wanted to try and was ready to try. He was kind of the opposite of, of Rabbi Danziger in that uh, Rabbi Danziger was so careful, measured, you know, to, to institute his ideas gradually. 
and Micah Greenstein just came in like a um, whirlwind. <laughs> so, um, and, and he hasn't slowed down since. And he hasn't slowed down since, exactly. So, uh, but he too has a very strong sense, I think, of the tradition that he follows and um, the inspiration that came before him. Um, so it, for me, it has been incredibly exciting to work with these rabbis, starting with Rabbi Wax, um, and to be able to write about the congregation, which by the time I was finished, I was so much more, I had so much more respect for the congregation than I had to begin with. Um, not because there was any disrespect, but because I'd never thought through a lot of these things. And I didn't know a lot of the history. So I didn't know most of the history. Uh, so for me, it was, it really was a labor of love. I think especially after reading this book, um, but for really anybody who's been a part of this place, you drive up here and you walk through the door and you walk into the chapel or the sanctuary and you realize that you're, you're standing, you're walking in the footsteps of, of these giants mm -hmm. who've carried our congregation to where we are today and set just such a tremendous legacy. And we, um, as a congregation and, and um, as, as people who serve it, owe you a debt of gratitude for, for telling the story and sharing with all of us um, who, who we can all strive to be. Thank you. Thank you very much. So thank you so much for, for joining us today, um, but especially thank you for all of the tremendous work and scholarship uh, that you did to keep the story alive. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. So, okay. Well, thank you very much. And, and to all of you listeners out there, um, this has been an episode of Torah to the People. I'm Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to be with you again soon. Take care.